good evening, uh, and thank you very much. I feel like I should roll up my sleeves here because we're going to get engaged in a, in, in a really fun intellectual discussion. I've flown back across the Atlantic from Washington, where I'm based now. My name's Sean Donnan. I'm the World Trade Editor for the Financial Times. And I am very happy to be here uh, this evening to discuss what is one of my favorite subjects, which is investor-state dispute settlement uh, mechanisms and TTIP, the Transatlantic Trade and Investment Partnership. Uh, I would have told you 18 months ago, if you had asked me what ISDS was, I would have looked at you blankly, but clearly all of us know very well what it is now. Thanks in part to, uh, to the work of, of Jan Kleinheisterkamp, who is our, our speaker tonight, and, and, and other eminent speakers. Um, I also have here uh, some, some guidelines in, in, in the event of disorder uh, in the room uh, to handle and protest here. I hope I don't have to use that tonight. We can all be civilized in our discussion here. We're not going to get into fisticuffs over investor state dispute settlement mechanisms, are we? Uh, the, uh, uh, I think that's, uh, uh, we'll set those aside for the moment. Uh, listen, it is a great honor for me uh, to welcome Dr. Jan Kleinheisterkamp here today. Uh, as I'm sure you're all aware, uh, Jan is associate professor at LSE Law and teaches international arbitration, contracts, and investment treaty law. Much of his recent research has focused on the interaction between investment treaty law and EU law, and it has, in fact, influenced the work of the European Parliament on the subject. That is obviously a very hot topic uh, nowadays, as we all ponder the future of transatlantic trade and the uh, trade and investment um, partnership that's being discussed. Um, I'm equally delighted uh, to welcome here Marty Koskinemi, and I'm sure I've mispronounced that, uh, the, uh, who is professor of international law at the University of Helsinki, and he's also a centennial professor here at LSE. And we're here... Uh, as part of what is the fifth lecture uh, in the 2015 uh, series of LSE works. Uh, I'm not going to spend much time. I've got a, a long uh, a speech here uh, that has been written out for me uh, detailing what LSE works is. I'm going to simply tell you that it began in 2011, and it is a series of lectures that showcase some of the latest research by the LSE's academic departments and research centers, and that the next LSE Works lecture will be given by the LSE Center for Economic Performance's Professor Alan Manning, uh, and it's entitled The Minimum Wage in the UK and Beyond. Uh, the minimum wage is obviously a very hot topic as well in the U.S., where I've just been. Um, tonight, uh, Jan is going to speak on one of my favorite subjects, as I've said, the investor-state dispute settlement provisions in TTIP uh, that have recently become a major political stumbling stone or block. Uh, we're going to ponder what can be learned from the resistance in terms of legal compatibility with the EU law and domestic law and political accessibility. Now, this is a really hot topic on Twitter. Whenever I really want to get some followers, I just put hashtag ISDS on something and I pick up immediately a thousand followers. Uh, so do the same tonight and I'm sure the same will happen to you. But tonight we'd ask you to use the hashtag, hashtag LSE works uh, if you're going to use ISDS as well. Um, this events evening is being recorded. That means you can go back and listen to it uh, as a podcast later on. But we will please... Uh, ask you, if you are asking questions later on, to make sure to use a microphone. Uh, there will be uh, opportunities to ask questions to the panel, uh, but for now, please join together with me and 
uh, Marty here, and welcome Dr. Jan Kleinheisterkamp, who's going to deliver his lecture entitled Investor Protection in TTIP, Fading Democracy or New Generation. Okay, um, I think I've never been introduced like this before to an academic talk. Um, as you may imagine, academics do not feel very comfortable uh, with this kind of exposure. Um, I am impressed by uh, the full theater, um, and I thank you all for coming. Um, the purpose of this lecture series is really to, well, not very modestly showcase LSE uh, uh, research and its supposed impact. I am uh, uh, delighted that I have the opportunity to a little bit tell you, tell you something about my research, um, and then I hope to keep that short because what I'm much more interested in is, is, is actually what, what most of you are thinking. Um, I hope that through the comments of Marty, um, we can then have a, a beginning of a discussion, and um, I'm looking forward to that. So let me really not deliver a paper, but honestly just kind of like uh, an introduction to what will hopefully be an interesting discussion. So <clears throat> why is this topic such a hot topic? Um, I have to admit that even I, who have been working on this since four years now, um, am just surprised of what turn this has taken in the last uh, basically one and a half years. Um, what is it that brings people in masses to this, audi uh, to this audience, what is it that brings people on the streets to protest against TTIP, and especially as regards this ISDS mechanism, investor state dispute settlement? Um, maybe let me start explaining to you how my research in this area began and what sparked it. It was actually, I teach international arbitration, which is international commercial arbitration, um, which is really the dispute of commercial disputes between private parties. Um, it is not so much um, the dispute mechanism that you are interested in now and that I am by now also interested. Um, but I read an arbitral award, so a decision by an arbitral tribunal a couple of years ago, which had to interpret a very broad provision in a BIT, you may be familiar with this by now, the Bilateral Investment Treaty between Switzerland and the Philippines. As you may know, most of these BITs are instruments which have been worded in a very broad manner, which just include general principles, if you want so, about what treatment a foreign investor can be expecting in a country that has committed to these principles, to these standards of protection. Um, but because they are worded in such an open and, one could say, vague manner, they need interpretation. This is where the lawyers kick in. We have ambiguity and we have techniques of how to fig figure out which is the right meaning. Is it a broad meaning? Is it a narrow meaning? And we have our techniques for that. And one of the techniques which we have is to interpret a treaty according to its object and purpose. We look at what was actually the object and purpose of this treaty. And in that light, we should come to the right interpretation. As usually lawyers do, the tribunal looked at this um, BIT and said, well, the object and purpose is spelled out in its title and its preamble, and the preamble says that it's there to promote and protect investments, not more. And therefore, we can safely interpret the provisions in this treaty in case of doubt in favor of the protection of the investor. Now, that is something which I had not 
come across yet or I wasn't familiar with. I found out that it's not that unfrequent, at least in older times. Can this be right? Can this be that an Abel tribunal says the object and purpose is the promotion of investments, therefore we will interpret the provisions in case of doubt in favor of an investor? This struck me as profoundly wrong because we really have to think about what are these treaties about? These treaties substitute for judicial recourse, for judicial review, before the courts of the host state, the state that actually has um, welcomed the investment and has committed to treat it in a certain manner. Usually, if someone comes to invest in the UK, what he will do or she will do is to trust that the US, that the, that the constitutional law, the public law of the UK will treat them in an adequate manner. Now, there are countries which do not have the same reputation as the UK, as Germany and Switzerland, and these are developing countries. It is actually after the Second World War that countries have started to, countries, European countries and then North American countries, have started to sign these bilateral investment treaties so as to protect their economic interests in countries where you would not have the same expectations as regards rule of law, good governance, and so on. Um, the point of these treaties was to allow the foreign investor not to have to go to courts in these countries, to be able to go right to international jurisdiction and not to be dependent on what national courts said or national law, but to be able to invoke international standards of protection in an international jurisdiction. This is an idea which has been particularly promoted by the World Bank, who in 1964 did the preparatory works for the 1965 convention, which is called the ICSID Convention. It is the convention establishing the International Center for Settlement of Investment Disputes, which promotes international investment arbitration with the following logic. Poor countries need capital to develop. For getting capital, they need to get foreign investments. Foreign investments need legal certainty and through a treaty and through international arbitration, we can provide this legal certainty. We take out political risk in the equation of the, uh, of the investor's decision of whether to make the investment or not. We enhance, therefore, not only investment, we also enhance development. It is on this basis, then, that by now some 3,000 BITs, bilateral investment treaties, have been concluded <coughs> And most of them have, of course, been concluded, or virtually all of them, in the beginning at least, have been concluded between a rich country, a capital exporting country on the one hand, and a capital importing country on the other hand. There's lots of literature on neocolonialism or postcolonialism about the notion of development, uh, how all of this fits together in a certain Way I don't want to go into all of that, but there is lots of reading out there for those interested to go deeper. What kind of spirit was behind those investment treaties in the beginning? It was clearly to secure our interests in poorer countries. Accordingly, it was convenient that they were worded in a very broad and open manner. They did not really provide legal certainty. They provided an opportunity to put pressure on a government which would start interfering with the economic activity and the property rights of the investor. Now, against this historical backdrop, it becomes then quickly clear why people today get excited if we now try to move to a different logic. That is, 
We are no longer concluding investment treaties just between developed countries and developing countries, which implied that it was very unlikely that Germany would get sued by an Ecuadorian investor, which means we didn't have to worry about that scenario. We do have to worry, however, that maybe a Canadian investor in the UK or a German investor in the US will be disgruntled with a public measure of regulation and may attack that and request compensation on that basis. This is what the investment provisions in CETA, the Comprehensive Economic Trade Agreement with the Canada, or TTIP, the trade, sorry, the Transatlantic Trade and Investment Partnership with the United States, will bring about an opportunity to sue the government for measures which do not comply with those international law standards as set out in the treaties. That, of course, leads to a fundamental question. To what degree can we accept, and do we want to accept, that our government actions are scrutinized by not our courts, but international tribunals? And the second question is, on which basis, on which substantive law basis should such scrutiny happen? This poses a big problem for other type of integration, because what we're talking about is a system of integration. When we see the European Union, we may understand why this creates a problem. What is the European Union? The European Union is born out of the idea after the Second World War as well that trade will enhance peace, that we should have an ever closer growing union which is not only economic but ultimately also political and so on. What we create is an internal market which is regulated in which economic actors can do cross-border transactions but not in, a completely, not in a completely free but in a regulated way. This regulation of what you can do in cross-border transactions depends of course always on policy decisions. It depends on what kind of balance we want to strike between private interests of the economic actors on the one hand and the public interest in making sure that that happens on a playing, level playing field and that it is harnessed for the public good for enhancing <coughs> public welfare. That is a political process. Regulation is ultimately the outcome of a political process and in Europe that's particularly complex because we have the member states, we have the union, we have the different institutions representing the different interests and we ultimately hope that in Europe we are capable of bringing about this balance between private and public interests through public debates, public opinion, through parliamentary discussions, about the, uh, through the legislative mechanisms that we have. So, if we have done these efforts over the last 50 years to establish this internal market, which is friendly to trade within the internal market, which removes obstacles to trade, but at the same time sets certain limits to what merchants, traders, investors across borders can do. The question is now, do we give this up by accepting foreign investors or even investors within the EU to invoke treaties which are not those, which are not the, the legislative basis of the internal market, which I've been just talking about? If you want to read up on that, I'm happy to provide you the references. There is actually good argument to say that there would be a problem. Think of it in the, in the following way. 
I'm German, so I will take the case that many of you will know, but refers to Germany, the Vattenfall case. What is happening then? So Germany, after Fukushima, decides to accelerate the exit from nuclear energy. That is a decision which was brought about by the government, but decided in the, in the German parliament, reducing the time for exit from 50 to 20 years. That is a very political decision, of course. Right? It is a decision which is legal, legal under German constitutional law. The parliament can decide this. Then we have questions which are very technical, whether this constitutes in Germany an expropriation, which is subject to compensation in the German constitution, as in most countries, or whether it is a definition of the content and the scope and the limits of the property rights. Right? Because, like in every piece of legislation, every piece of regulation, you have someone who wins and someone who loses. Um, an example which I like to give is um, to my students is, for example, I met a lobbyist in Brussels once who spent seven years working on a specific case, and I asked her, what was that exactly? And she said, well, it is, <laughs> it is on a regulation which determines the standards of hygiene in slaughterhouses. And I just thought, well, who on earth could possibly have an interest in this and have some, pay someone to work on this for seven years? And she says, well, the soap makers, right? If you, lo if you raise the standards for soap, uh, sorry, not the standards for hygiene in, in, in slaughterhouses, Slaughterhouses have to buy more expensive soap and therefore someone will be earning money. Right? Someone else will be losing money because their soap is no longer bought. Right? I'll just give you an example. Every little comma in legislation is kind of redistributing rights and obligations among citizens and may make someone richer and someone poorer. Now, the exit from, from nuclear energy as uh, in, uh, in Germany, uh, is, uh, in the, as in the Vattenfall case, is in principle legitimate under German law. The question now is, what kind of protection does an investor have, in this case Vattenfall, a Swedish company, if it finds that that decision is not correct, right? It can go to German courts, which they have, right? They have to battle their way up until they reach the German constitutional court, who has the final say on German constitutional law. We have, of course, a European dimension to this. This is something which happens within the internal market. So we do have EU law to be respected in all of this as well, which means ultimately if an EU law question arises, the investor has the right to ask this question also to be posed to the European Court of Justice. Beyond that, there is yet another layer, which is um, human rights. The European Convention of Human Rights will also apply. It has in its first protocol also the protection of property and regulates other aspects. If there is a problem with that, we can go, or the investor can go, to, uh, to uh, Strasbourg and ask the court there to verify whether the German acts are in conformity with the European Convention of Human Rights. All of these three parts are integrated to each other. You have to exhaust local remedies before going to the European Court of Human Rights. You have to respect the procedures laid out in the European treaties for having access to the court in Luxembourg. But what is happening is that now the foreign investor says, well, I don't care about all of that. They do, to be honest. They do. They do litigate through the different instances, and they are trying to get their rights under German constitutional law, under European law, under the European Convention of Human Rights. But 
they also have yet another card that they are playing, and that is then the Energy Charter Treaty, which is a multilateral agreement regarding energy investments and which provides more or less the same standards of protection as those bilateral investment treaties which I have mentioned. (coughs) That, of course, now poses a problem because that system is not integrated into those other three layers which I have mentioned. And now the real question is, how do we deal with situations where an act by a government is perfectly legal under its constitutional law, under European law, under the European Convention of Human Rights, but might be found depending on the interpretation of the Energy Charter Treaty, which is equally vague as those BITs, that under the Energy Charter Treaty, that was not legal what happened, that compensation has to be paid different from what Germany has offered, and so on. That is basically a problem because we now have two set of rules for exactly the same kind of scenario. And the balances are struck differently. (coughs) This is why I insisted so much on the balance of public interests and private interests. If we have this balance struck in a long process in the internal market, um, the question is why can we have this, if you want so, unraveled through international investment arbitration? And at this point, I don't even want to say something about investment arbitration as such, but really the problem is the basis on which these cases are decided which means it leads us to the question, what should the content of these treaties be if we want to have this spectrum (coughs) mechanism of investment protection? Now, again, the uh, problem is the discrepancy in substantive law, and we have to ask ourselves, if we negotiate with other countries now, like with Canada, like with the United States, we, the Europeans, what kind of substance do we want to put in there? And one thing that I have been working on and trying to figure out is, how can you do that? One thing is sure, even if you have rather vaguely vaguely worded investment treaties, they were never intended to confer on investors any greater rights than what they probably would have had under their national law in their home country. That's one thought. If a German goes to invest in Ecuador, we want to take off the political risk which the uncertainties maybe around the judicial and political system in Ecuador bring about. But if we guarantee the German investor going to Ecuador to have the same protection as under German constitutional law, he would be legally more or less in the same position as if he were investing in Frankfurt. Right? He's just investing in Quito, but legally we create artificially through the treaty the same level of legal protection. I'm not saying that what one should do is hold Ecuador to the same standard as German administrative law. It becomes quite obvious that that is problematic because Ecuador doesn't have the same resources, the same uh, uh, possibilities of uh, having a functioning administration as Germany has. What I'm trying to say is whatever these investment treaties which were concluded with Ecuador mean, that cannot mean more than what German law would grant for a German investor. Now, for a number of reasons, that is a flawed logic because afterwards, and I don't want to enter into this, you have so-called most favorite nation clauses which allow investors to invoke standards of other treaties. This is why you cannot just say it's an easy fix. You just always look at the maximum level of protection that the investor has in his home country. 
This is why I have suggested what we need is comparative law studies and to find out the countries which have the highest level of investor protection, what do they have in common? How do they treat issues like indirect expropriation, a very hot issue in investment treaty law? How, they treat, how do they treat questions of legitimate expectations, something which is something that comes up in the case law under investment treaties, how do they treat fair and equitable treatment, but not in general terms, just not just one-liners as in the BITs, but we really look how do German courts treat these issues in thousands of decisions which are rendered every year in claims of national citizens affected by public regulation. That's a big work. That is lots of work to be done, but I think it has to be done first in order to be able to say what the substance of these treaties should be. The big flaw that we are seeing at the moment is, and this is my criticism to the Commission, who is trying to take – it's not its fault, by the way, I can come back to that in a moment – what the Commission is doing, it takes these old models, which have been concluded in the 1980s, 1990s, and says, okay, this is the basis on which we negotiate. The Americans do the same, the only difference being that the Americans are part of NAFTA and they've been hit by cases, by claims from Canadian investors and have rethought their investment treaties in 2004, 2012 and have updated them and have put, up, have put in a lot of safeguards in there to make sure that their own right to regulate is not so much impacted. But what we have is old treaties or the logic of old treaties, partially a little bit updated, but what we're trying to do is now to find something very elaborate, something very sophisticated between the U.S. and Europe, based on an old model which was not designed for the situation of two developed countries negotiating with each other. They were designed for a developed country negotiating with an underdeveloped country. But we take this model, and now we try to put patches on it. We try to fix it through little lines, through little explanations, definitions, and so on. And I think that is a big problem, because that way we continue this logic of having parallel standards. Remember what I said about the Vattenfall case. We have German constitutional law, European law, and the European uh, Convention of Human Rights on the one hand. On the other hand, we have <coughs> a treaty, which is not designed in the same manner, which does not conclude, contain the same specifications, the same degree of sophistication as the law developed in a, quite a long time. So if we want to integrate investor protection and make it compatible with our national laws, we have to build it bottom up. We have to do it in comparative works. We have to find out what we are actually already granting to investors in our own countries and then work on that basis. So that is one important, I think, suggestion. I am conscious that that is not going to happen. And that is because of lack of time and political pressure to get the treaty through as quick as possible. So the other way of addressing this issue is how the U.S. have addressed this issue of being sued and not knowing how arbitrators are going to interpret the treaty provisions. And that is, in 2002, Congress has made clear in the guidelines for the negotiating of free trade agreements that investor protection, whatever these provisions mean, they cannot be formulated in such a way that they grant foreign investors more rights, more rights, in the U.S. than U.S. investors have in the U.S. Well, they say, if a German investor comes to, or now it will be saying, if a German investor comes to the U.S., he is entitled to what U.S. law gives that investor and which U.S. law gives to 
uh, US investors. So you're put on the same foot, but you are not entitled to anything more. The European Parliament has done exactly the same thing. Last year has put into a regulation on the financial uh, responsibility of the European Union a clarification that foreign investors, that future treaties of the U European Union should not grant foreign investors in the EU more rights than European investors have in the EU. Because that is precisely linking back the substantive rights of investors to what we have established for ourselves. That, of course, brings about a big problem. Does this really work when we negotiate with developing countries which do not have the same level of legal protection? Um, investors are worried about us setting a precedent with TTIP, with CETA, which then afterwards might lead to less protection of investors when they go to undeveloped countries. Then, and I think we should have a debate about this, the question is to what degree should we set standards that we want with developing countries also for ourselves in relation with the United States? That is a big question mark. Then finally, I'm seeing that my time is running out, um, just one more proposition which we should think about. First of all, I think it is necessary to clarify that these treaties do not confer greater rights on foreigners than we have already established in our own jurisdictions. But secondly, we must make sure that there is an ongoing dialogue between our courts and the public administration so as to, to, to continue developing those rules which give legal certainty to the investors in our country, but also the investors coming from abroad. What we need is that foreign investors cannot right away shortcut the process of going to national courts to find out what national law actually allows, but to let courts decide and inform administration also on what the limits are, what can do, which means that we can include in these treaties um, local litigation requirements and say, for example, that the investor must first go through our courts for a period of maybe, I don't know, five years, for example, like everyone else, and try to get the right there. And if that doesn't work, well, then they have access to a supranational um, jurisdiction. That is the same system that we have established for ourselves under European Convention of Human Rights. You first have to even exhaust local remedies before you have access to Strasbourg. Therefore, one could say, if that is what we want for ourselves, why not also say that that is the standard for foreign investors? Um, as you can see from the title that we have chosen, um, the question is really, do you want to go for a model of renovation and say, we have an old system which has been created through these BITs, they have proven to work to some degree for us, but now they certainly do not anymore. We should rethink those. We should create a new system and, especially in substance, redesign that law. Or should we just say, in the relation with the United States, we don't need that at all? I think I'll leave it there. Um, Marty can take over from here and give us a history. Thank you very much. Yeah, and thank you very much. Um, you've given us a lot to chew on uh, already. Marty, it is your job to give us even more to chew on. Do you want to sit down? I think I'll sit down. Okay. 
So Jan started out pretty modestly by saying that that he uh, didn't understand where the, all this interest all, uh, had arisen, and he had done a little bit of work. He is actually one of the greatest experts in the techniques of uh, investor-state dispute settlement. I, on the other hand, come from to this topic completely from the dark. So I'm just. A, a regular international lawyer, having spent most of my career in various UN-related assignments, have sat in endless committees, uh, in the, mostly in the UN, multilateral diplomacy, uh, and uh, so on. But now, in the course of the past 18 months, I would say, uh, a number of people that I knew and an even greater number of people whom I didn't know beforehand have been contacting me, asking me, because I am a professor, to explain what is uh, this system of investor um, state dispute settlement and how should people, politicians, I'm thinking of the Finnish parliamentarians, I'm thinking of the Nordic parliamentarians, I'm thinking of people who are sitting in the European Parliament in Strasbourg and Brussels, they want to know what to think about this. And I have noticed that they have great concern over this. Now, most of my academic work has been in legal history. So the first comment I will have to make to Jan is that it's true that uh, although this is a new matter, it has a history, but the history doesn't start with, this, with the setting up of the ICSID system, the system under which the BITs, the bilateral investment treaties, are being administered under the World Bank, but it starts from the late 19th century. In the late 19th century, American investors in Latin America, especially in Mexico, were facing constant problems because of the instability, the civil wars, the coup d'etats, and the general violence that sometimes hit at American investors. Now, Americans, um, under the Monroe Doctrine, had for many years in Latin America claimed that European powers should not exercise gunboat diplomacy, indeed, that they should not exercise any kind of imperial power in the Latin America. And in order to uh, show a good example to the Europeans, the Americans themselves thought they shouldn't do that either. But how can they help these investors? And in the 1860s, 1870s, and 1880s, together with Mexican government, or, the, or what was first the Mexican government and then was an exile government, and then again with the new government, and yet again a new government, agreed on mixed commissions and arbitrations, claims commissions, in which the claims of American investors could be dealt with. Um, and um, the, so the history is longer. It's a, it's a typically American history. It has to do with protection of American investors in Latin America. And thereafter, of course, the investors from countries that export uh, investments uh, in the 1950s, 1960s. There were a few famous nationalization cases after the uh, independence uh, of uh, former colonies in northern Africa, the British Petroleum case, the Texaco case, the Aramco case in, in um, Iran, etc. And within the World Bank, it was understood that those individual cases were not always decided in the way that that, um, well, they were decided in very different ways and not always in ways that were conducive to 
uh, good relations between the former colonial masters and their colonial powers. So the World Bank set this system up. So that's my contribution as a legal historian to make a point about the colonial origins of the system. And then to make the point about the great embarrassment that as a European or an American person one has to feel when something that was developed as a colonial instrument to discipline the countries that don't have civilized legal systems is all of a sudden turned against oneself. So what should one say? Uh, uh, And it's not, of course, immediately obvious what one should say. But coming back to the politicians who have turned to me, asking, Marty, what should we think about this? So, uh, and I started to study uh, the, the substance of the matter. And I, what I have said to, uh, to these politicians, I will be, uh, Jan is constantly there with the European Parliament, I will be going there for the first time in March to meet up with groups of parliamentarians. And I've been thinking as to what I should say. I should say this that the idea, the principled idea here is to establish a parallel legal system alongside the European and the American legal systems. That um, parallel system would be open uh, in a unilateral way only to the foreign investors. Unlike domestic investors, foreign investors are freed from but also cannot enjoy automatically the rights provided and the procedural avenues provided by the domestic system. Instead, there is a new set of rights and procedures that foreign investors may use. Do we want to have a parallel system? As a footnote, one can say, in a a world of colonialism, one understands that one wants a parallel system because there is no trust in the primitive world of or the, the primitive legal systems of the colonial world? Do we want a parallel system to, um, alongside what we have always thought that was the, were the best legal systems in the world, the American and the European one? Of course, what is a good legal system is a value judgment. Uh, what one can say about the existing legal systems in comparison to the new system, the investor protector legal legal system, at least is that the old legal systems, the European and the American ones, are extremely detailed and extremely embedded in the societies in which they are. Whereas the new, the investor uh, protection system is based on a very broad standard, fair and equitable treatment, plus Uh, a limited number, but a fair number, some hundreds uh, of cases in which um, international arbitrators have interpreted what uh, fair and equitable treatment means. One relatively common way to judge the primitiveness or development of legal systems is to look at how technically complex they are in relationship to how broad standards, broad evaluative standards they contain. I don't need to spell out what the result of that evaluation, that comparison would be. The concern uh, of European parliamentarians is what happens with European legislation. The cases that have been decided in the past have dealt with 
every conceivable facet of legislative work. There are cases, as Jan referred to, cases having to do with energy legislation. There are cases about health legislation, cases about competition legislation, about labor legislation, etc., etc. Now, one thing one needs to say to the politicians is that these arbitration tribunals do not invalidate any of that legislation. They only deal with possible compensation to the investors whose interests have been violated in an unfair fashion by uh, the legislation. And what's unfair? That's, of course, a big concern. And the European Commission has, and European politicians have, have stressed the need to spell out more clearly what fair and equitable treatment might mean, so that there would be predictability, foreseeability in the application of that broad standard. Now, many practicing lawyers have a skeptical attitude towards how much one can do with verbal formulations. Lawyers go through long years of education in institutions such as the London School of Economics to learn to use verbal formulations for surprising purposes and to draw from them new interpretations and, um, well, as I said, surprising conclusions. Something can be done with verbal formulations. The effort to spell out what fair and equitable treatment means, that is to say, what the substantive standard of protection is, is an honorable effort. But it's not sufficient. So the, uh, when I'm going to speak with politicians in Strasbourg, I cannot stop there. I have to uh, point to especially two factors uh, that are often left on explicated when one debates um, uh, investor-state dispute settlement. The first, of, first fact is that, as every lawyer, every practicing lawyer knows, the important thing is not to go to court or to arbitration. The important thing is to threaten the counterpart that unless you agree, we will go to arbitration. It has been counted that the costs of arbitration uh, are between 8 million and 30 million uh, um, US dollars, euros, I think, euros uh, uh, average costs. Now, I come from a country that is in the middle of a recession, Finland. And, I and in that country, three of the largest private healthcare institutions. There are three companies, which are the three largest. They are all owned by uh, foreigners. Now I imagine I am a, an official in the Finnish Social Health Legislative Board, and I'm drafting a new legislation. And while I'm drafting it, the lawyer from one of these companies comes to me and says, well, we would like very much that you would draft this new health legislation in the following way, dot, dot, dot. And if you don't, then see you in court. Now, the Finnish 
health system, like I understand also the English health system, is under quite a bit of economic pressure. My choice is, well, I draft the legislation as I had planned and see you in court. Oops, 8 million, maybe 30 million. Will, who will pay this? Isn't it so much easier just to say, yes, yeah, sure. You know, it's just text, black on white. So my first point, that's not often uh, uh, memorialized, it's not often remembered, is that these cases are not there in order to enable lawyers to raise high uh, fees to, by taking uh, the uh, adversaries to court. These courts are there in the background in order to solidify a system of negotiation in which people have bargaining power and they bargain as against the possibility of taking others to court. That's my, my second and my last point here is when I speak with investor, investment arbitration experts uh, and I, uh, then I notice that they often speak about the pros and cons of individual cases. They talk about good faith investors who in the darkness of European Union are being met by dubious uh, public officials who only want to suck out of the investors the money with that they in good faith brought in and will never deliver on the promises that they gave. And I'm sure that such situations exist. But I'm not that interested in, this, in those situations. I'm a lawyer who was trained through long years of legal training, and I'm looking at the bad faith investors, the bad men, as we are trained to think about. The investor-state dispute settlement system makes the national law a sitting duck. And by making the national law a sitting duck, it makes the political communities in Europe and the United States sitting duck for bad faith investors. It opens the possibility to threaten the domestic legislators, domestic courts, and domestic arbitrators by procedures uh, that, whether or not the threat is justified, nevertheless will be costly, and one never knows what the result is. One of the fantastic aspects of our past experience of ISDS is that instead of producing predictability, it produces results uh, in which the cases are completely go in which way um, uh, ever on the basis of who happens to sit as an arbitrator. We have cases in which, with the same facts, arbitrators have decided in opposite, uh, opposite ways. Let, let me finish by saying that there are companies, around 10 of them nowadays, in Europe and in the United States that specialize in third-party financing. That is to say, financing of cases that people who, don't, who can't afford or don't want to can then take into courts, including in arbitration, without having to risk their own money. I will finish with this purely speculative uh, story to you. In Finland, a U.S. mining company has invested. Now it turns out that the investment wasn't such a great thing as the chief executive officer once said to the stockholders. 
The uh, uh, meeting of the stockholders is next week, and the CEO is really nervous. What, what can I say to these people? So I've, we've invested, and, we didn't, and the profits haven't been as, as we promised. And he turns to the lawyer, and the lawyer says, well, let's try to see if we can put some of our misfortunes on the shoulders of the Finnish taxpayers. But, says the CEO, this will cost us money. We can't take these people to arbitration. Haven't you read? Uh, eight to 30 million. Not to worry, says the lawyer, because there are these companies that are specialized in financing. And let's just turn to them and let's see what will happen. Thank you very much. Thank you. Now, we'd like to turn it to the, uh, to, uh, to the floor and, and, and to uh, 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 open up the discussion a little bit here. I'm conscious some of you may be a bit shyer than others. We've got a big audience here. So I am willing, on your behalf, to ask questions if you lodge them via Twitter, if you happen to use that. If you use the hashtag LSEWorks, I can, I can suck up your questions and ask them, pretend they're mine. I will credit you. Um, um, there. Um, should, should we have a show of hands? Are there any questions? Oh, look, one, two, three, four, five, six. Oh, there was a half a hand over there. Uh, seven, okay. I think one of you was first over here. Now, which one of you? Be honest. Who was first? Right uh, the You're such a gentleman. Yeah, there. Okay. We'll come Hi. to you next. Hello. Um, good evening. My name is Gloria Alvarez. I'm a research fellow at the School of International Arbitration in Queen Mary. And I'm actually a very shy person, but the discussion is incredible. And I, I really agree with Jan in his proposals. I think the comparative study, although of course it will take a lot of time, it will be so important, especially for fair and equitable treatment, as you say, or for expropriation. However, I disagree in the background you gave. I think it's not completely disintegrated. EU law and investment arbitration. And there are many justifications we can find. For example, Article 206 of the Lisbon Treaty somehow makes the ECT binding because the EU is signatory as well as all member states. So there is a synergy. There is already an interaction. We cannot say that there are two different monsters. And the other thing that bothers me is that you say investors have a card. They have a card when they have a, an arbitration agreement in a BIT. But who gave them this card? It was an, the, the states are the masters of the treaty. We have heard that many, many times. The EU itself and the member states have agreed these treaties 20 years ago, 15 years ago. So let's, let's see the investors and let's see investment arbitration not as the, the bad uh, characters of the history. The member states themselves signed these treaties. Okay. And the only comment, and I think it's a personal comment, I'm Mexican, so I come from a primitive legal system. But I, I, I disagree, because if you compare the legal system of Romania, of Italy, I wouldn't say it's as, it's as efficient, perhaps, as the court of Chile. So let's don't put the EU as a perfect legal system, because it might be the case that it's not. Okay. Okay, well, why don't we take the question next to you? We'll take a group of questions here first. And, and, and I apologize to the rest of the room. Just because the microphone's over there, we'll take these three questions over there, and then we'll come to the rest of the room. Uh, okay, thank you. Nader Khalil, uh, LLM student here at LSC. Um, 
From my perspective, we've heard a critical voice on investment arbitration and a moderately critical voice. So perhaps there's another side to this. Um, in regards to what Professor Koskinimi said, um, he doesn't, if you boil down to it, he doesn't seem to be fundamentally concerned with the occurrence of bad faith, uh, of bad faith investors and the threats they can pose. Those threats exist under national procedures as well. The fundamental issue seems to be one of democratic sovereignty. So my question, I suppose, and to kind of link his speech to that by Dr. Klein-Heiserkamp, are there any limitations on the procedure of investment arbitration that he can accept that would be sufficiently respectful of, um, of this democratic sovereignty in order to be allowed into our system of dispute resolution? Okay. And that kind of feeds into one very quickly related question. I know I'm being a bit bold here. Okay. Um, what Dr. Klein-Heiserkamp then proposed was that we limit whatever is available to these investors to whatever is available under national law. Now, my quick question to him would be, to what extent does that denude the core of investment arbitration? Okay. We would never accept such a similar argument for the European Convention of Human Rights by saying, yes, yes, you have these certain fundamental rights that we politically determined you have, but, um, oh, oh, but those have to be in accordance with whatever we say and whatever uh, determinations of legality uh, our national courts make. So I think that's somewhat critical of both speakers. I'll leave it at that. That's an interesting point. And there was one more question. Just over, no, 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 look left, look left, look left. There he is. Thank you. Uh, my name is Jake. I'm a student in environmental economics here at LSE. Okay. And similar, similar follow-up um, to his question. I, we've heard from EU and, and UK trade ministers that um, the ISDS provision is defensible and can be strengthened. Um, they referred to CETA as an example of yep. a stronger provision um, and said that maybe a CETA plus um, is a reality that would, would make everyone happy in TTIP. Mm -hmm. I'm interested in the expert's opinion as to if that's possible, and if so, what would be, need to be included to uh, strengthen the ISDS clause to make it more fair? Okay, great. Why don't we come back to, the, to, to, to Jan here? Uh, you got all three of those? <laughs> I think that's working. I, th I think yeah, it, yeah. it's just not like Is it working? Yeah, oh, yes, yeah, I'm sorry. Um, yes, for maybe something which I just missed out in the beginning, a clarification which goes uh, in the direction of, of the three comments so far. Um, uh, I've tried to, be, uh, to get also someone who would stand up here and defend both the existing system and ISDS. Uh, I've just not been lucky uh, to find uh, the, the, the right person um, available. Uh, I, I, I can testify to that as well, because Jan and I have been trading emails for weeks. on, on So, so I'm, I'm, I'm sorry not to be able to give you the hardcore uh, other side to, let's say, contrast Marty more than maybe me. Um, but uh, I, I, will, I will try to, to pick up on your points. Um, uh, the, the, um, the Energy Charter Treaty is part of what the European Union has created. You're completely right. The European Commission drafted this document. It was created but it was not created to modify European law. And this is a, 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 something which is ongoing in arbitrations right now. Let me just give you a very short sketch. The Niche Charter Treaty was created so as to secure European investments in the Eastern European and uh, former Soviet countries when uh, the Berlin Wall fell down and they were new states who were needing investment very badly, and of course what they had to offer is energy. Um, these treaties were there to secure European investors in these countries. They were not there to ensure energy investments within the European Union by European investors. This is, however, how they're being used right now. 
right? Um, the European internal market also covers energy. It is something which is integral part of European law. If we now say, no, um, the energy charter treaty is, is part of that, we would be modifying the rules on, invest, on, on energy investments within the European Union, and I, I don't believe that that is what has been intended. I mean, there are people disagreeing on this and saying, but the member states signed the whole thing. Yes, but I don't think they signed them so as to be applicable among themselves. So it's a, it's a big contentious issue. Um, now, the European Court of Justice itself said, well, whatever the Energy Charter Treaty means, it cannot mean much dif anything very different from what European law says, which rather points in my direction, saying, well, if we want to integrate them, well, we have to use this treaty in such a way that it actually is interpreted in conformity with European law. So that is one thing. Um, and you're right, of course, our investment treaties created by the states. The states have given investors these rights, and they have done so en masse. They have, uh, the European member states have signed some 1,400 of these treaties, and that is one of the biggest arguments which is put forward to say, we already have this. It's nothing new. And indeed, probably the biggest threats from this kind of creation is that investors through um, Singapore or through... Um, uh, Hong Kong or whatever else, where we have bilateral investment treaties, bring a claim against, uh, let's say, the UK government, against Germany, or against the EU altogether. Once, no, sorry, not the EU altogether, because the EU has not yet put into place such a treaty. The question is rather, is that a logical continuation to just to follow the same kind of development, or should we just be, maybe just stop and say we should rethink this? What we have created so far was for a certain type of scenario. It was not for the scenario that we are now trying to uh, address. And the question is not, yes, the, the investors are not to be blamed to use these treaties. I, I think that there's nothing fundamentally wrong. I think I disagree a little bit with Marty on this point. Um, they have been given this tool or toy, and they're using it. And uh, they, they, that has been done inadvertently, I would argue, historically. Um, others say no, consciously. Well, fine, be it. The question is really today, do we want to perpetuate this? Do we want to continue the system, or should we rethink it and maybe adapt it to what we really want? And, this, and, and, and I know I have yeah, to go on, sorry. You've got, you got, you got a few more to go to. Yes, um, Romania, Italia, yep. I fully agree with that. We have a problem there. The question is really... Do we need an international system to address that, or do we use our own transnational, sorry, supranational system, which is the EU, to do this? Part of European law is to bring all the countries to the same standards. We are failing to do this. We should recognize that, but we should address it harder. We should not just brush it aside and say, we have a new system which now fixes this. It won't fix it. It will just aggravate the situation. And then um, on the combined two second questions, um, <coughs> How can we adapt the system so as to make it fit? I think I partially addressed that issue. Um, if you look specifically, if you want to have that discussion, it's a very detailed discussion. You have to go point by point through the CETA agreement as we know it now. But um, uh, I think there is a common consensus by now also among the governments that that is just not enough what has been negotiated in CETA. We have to address more public concerns, and maybe that is the basic gist of what I, I want to bring across is um, – the concerns that have been raised so far have been brushed aside as being 
uninformed or just gut feeling or stirred by media and stirred by NGOs. I think they address, however, a fundamental point, which is a fear for democracy. And if, if, we, if we have the impression that democracy is fading because of these mechanisms, um, then we must address this and not just brush it aside and say, no, it's not the case. It might not be the case, and the numbers are not so, so huge that we have to fear for our democratic system to crumble. But as a matter of principle, we have to be, I think, sensitive to the problem that um, public perception raises something fundamental, and we can address this. And I think the mechanisms which I've highlighted do this. And if I abuse my, system, my, my situation just on one more point, um, compatibility with the European Convention of Human Rights, or we would not accept that for the European Convention of Human Rights. Well, that is maybe a, a contradiction that the same government at the same time is promoting supranational rights for U.S. investors, right, on the one hand, through treaties, at the same time is pleading for bringing human, uh, human rights back home and making sure that European, the interpretation of the European Rights Convention does not affect the understanding in the U.K. Well, this is exactly what the... Uh, um, Justice uh, Secretary is proposing at the moment. So I think that, again, rather should give us moment, a moment for pause and say, well, what do we really want? Do we want access for our citizens to international rights and in front of an international court? If we don't want that, why do we do it for foreign investors? It's something which has to be sorted out politically. Uh, thank you, Jan. I, I would just add that just as you talk about Roma uh, Romania and Italy, uh, there I often wonder why people don't talk about Mississippi and Alabama, for example, on the other side of the Atlantic. Uh, the, uh, uh, Marty, do you want to respond at all? No. No, okay. Uh, now, just I've, I've got your question there, but I'm going to come to the center of the room just to be fair. So we don't, not everyone thinks we're on the right of politics here. The, uh, um, the, in the center, right in the middle there, it's coming from your other side. There it is. And then we'll go over there, and then we'll come back to you, okay? Hello. Um, <clears throat> I'm Stephen Cooney, and um, a Ph.D. In, from LSE in 1974, a uh, long time ago. And, Fine year. Uh, yes. Uh, uh, um, spent a lot of time in my career working with um, BITs and international investment issues, and I think the two speakers have done a very good job of highlighting some of the inconsistencies or issues. And so the only question I have here, really, is uh, Pascal Lamy, uh, former Secretary General of the WTO, uh, spoke here at LSE in November. And uh, he was, this question was raised with respect to TTIP. And his comment was, uh, I'll summarize it as quickly as I can, he said, we did a 1992 single market program, which is today, 2015, 2014, about 80% complete for trade and about 40% complete for services. This is a big project. And he said, frankly, I think ISDS, you're talking about integrating a very big project into TTIP, as I think the two speakers have just elaborated. And so my question, final question is, do you think, following on from his logic, that it should just be dropped from TTIP? It's, it's, it's just not the place to do it. And in keeping with Pro Professor Klein Heisterkamp's comment, it, they, it was really developed for a different purpose, um, a different purpose, which is the relationship between developed and developing countries that do not have systems of law that were acceptable to, to, to okay. investors. 
Okay. Uh, we'll go back there uh, to the lady in the red T-shirt and then to the gentleman behind, and then we'll come back to the floor, and then we'll come back to you and you. Okay? Um, uh, thank you very much. I'm Jenny Lee. I'm also an LLM student here in, L in LSE. Uh, my question is also about uh, the WTO relationship with the TTIP. Um, as far as I understand, uh, WTO legal framework is also part of the existing legal framework for in investor protection. And similar to the question uh, the gentleman just mentioned, uh, uh, what do you think is the uh, comparative advantage of the TTIP in terms of investor protection as compared to the existing state versus state dispute settlement in WTO uh, area? And, uh, um, and the second one is uh, what do you think is the implication for the, some developing countries in the world, such as China, which is not currently participating in the negotiation in the TTIP? Okay, just hand the microphone right behind you. Gentleman right there. Hi, uh, Todd Tucker from Cambridge. Uh, a question for the professor, a legal history question. Um, even taking investment treaty advocates uh, sort of at their best case that really what we're doing with these treaties between developed and developing countries is imposing developed country standards on developing countries, is there any argument, what is the association of that with economic development? Uh, for instance, it seems a lot of the late developers like Korea uh, developed without having that type of importation of, of 21st century uh, developed country standards onto developing countries. And then just a comment uh, for Yan. Uh, as someone who worked, uh, I worked on the, uh, the Trade Act of 2002 that you mentioned in the United States. And, you know, one of the, one of the challenges that we've seen from the U.S., uh, as, as we attempt to interpret what no substantive uh, rights greater uh, than what U.S. investors have, as we've attempted to interpret that, one of the difficulties is the constantly changing nature of those substantive rights uh, under the U.S. legal system. So what regulatory takings means has evolved over time. Um, and the difficulty also of, of, of saying that there's no greater substantive rights while at the same time having greater procedural rights, certainly, for foreign investors. And you know, at the margin, the procedural and substantive can kind of tend to bleed into one another. Anyway, thank you. Okay, and I'll, I'll just add that I am uh, looking at Twitter here, and Glenn Moody, who's uh, an ever-present voice on these things, is he in the room here today? No? No? Uh, on, on ICS has also asked, why, why do we need it in, 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 uh, in TTIP at all if we've already got 4.1 trillion euros uh, in transatlantic investment? Um, Jan. Okay. Um yeah, really interesting questions as well. Um, the, 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 the relationship with the WTO, um, almost too broad a question now to, to address, but, but let me just give it a try. Um, I, I agree with, your, with, with what Pascal Lamy said. It's that we, it took us a long time to integrate trade, to integrate services, um, in, in the European Union, and we are still not there. So, so we are, we're doing a big project there. Um, uh, so one could argue that this doesn't fit with TTIP altogether. It's just too much, right? At the same time, one, I think, has to understand what TTIP is really about. It, it, it is, and this links to the second question as well, it is an attempt to get at a larger scale, at a not just regional scale, but at a, at a here now transatlantic scale, something which we could also not get 
at the global scale. So the, the, the problem is that the WTO is perceived since quite a long time to be you know, a dead-end road, more or less. We can't move forward. We need to. We, need to. we, 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 we want to change the, the status quo, move towards more free trade. And in that respect, um, the, the, and the implications for other countries other than as follows, this is a forerunner for you know, overcoming the, 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 the deadlock at the WTO. In which respect does it make sense to integrate investment in this? Well, I guess what we're seeing in terms of protest uh, is, 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 is more or less the equivalent to what we saw in Seattle, which we saw earlier than that uh, against the MAI in the context of the OECD. It's almost surprising that the politicians are surprised because if you go back in time, each time that the subject has come up at a, at a broader level, it has been uh, attacked and, and, and criticized and, and actually brought down. So um, I guess uh, one has to learn from this experience, and, and if one wants to integrate it now at such a transatlantic basis, one, one will have to address those concerns, and, and otherwise it, it is, again, very difficult for politicians to stand up in their parliaments and vote in favor of uh, CETA, in favor of TTIP, because that is what we're going to have to do. We will have to ratify or we will have to get uh, um, national parliaments as well to agree to, to these treaties and not only uh, the European Parliament. And it's for the politicians to justify why they, they vote in favor of that. And I think, therefore, we need to integrate the concerns because otherwise, well, they don't, they don't go away. Um, the implications, the for, implications China. for China? Well... Uh, the U.S. is negotiating with China, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, Canada has concluded a treaty with China. Um, we are next in line. Uh, the European Union has plans and has started, as, I, as far as I understand, already negotiating with China. Um, the big thing is that uh, TTIP is looked at as a standard, a standard at which everyone will be looking and saying, well, if we have it there, we can also implement that everywhere else. Um, last week, we, we had a very interesting discussion with the chief negotiator on investments uh, from the U.S., who said, well, it's very simple. Barroso and uh, Obama stood up together at the beginning of the idea of TTIP and said, we want to establish among ourselves what we want to be the rule for everyone else as well. So TTIP is, in, is designed as a precedent for moving forward. Now, is it really going to work? One can just point at, for example, well, what's the relationship between TTIP and CETA? Right? It's kind of strange that we have NAFTA on the one hand, so a free trade agreement between the U.S. and Canada, but we might end up with different rules with the two parts of that. It's not clear why, how this, that, that is going to work. So do we have to go back on CETA and adapt it to TTIP? So there is lots of wishful thinking, and I think it ha makes sense to think in that direction to say we establish rules among ourselves, which we then want to kind of spread where we couldn't do it over the, through the WTO. I, I'm just going to jump in here a little bit because this is one of my favorite subjects, right? This, this is, I'm one of the people, the few people in the world who reads just about everything that's written about the Doha round. Most people just immediately just going to shed that aside because, it, it, as Jan says, it hasn't gone anywhere fast uh, in, in, a, in a long while. But it's part of my job to, to stay informed. There used to be, once upon a time, we used to talk about the, the, the great multilateral, what is called the single undertaking agreement in the world, and that this was what Seattle was about, right? That, that we're sort of a new global governance structure there. And then uh, when that uh, stopped happening, then we had uh, Jagdish Bhagwati talked about the noodle Bowl. Now, this is the reason this is my favorite subject. Is I think I've got something that I can patent here, and that is the ravioli plate, uh, and that is that that actually TTIP, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, 
uh, CETA to a certain extent, the, the Pacific Alliance in Latin America, and all these things, what, what are known as mega-regional uh, agreements are in fact, rather than individual noodles between two economies, are, are bigger uh, ravioli. And I think that what we're looking at, and this, as Jan is very right to say, this is the alternative to, to, to the stalled multilateral system that we're talking about here, the ravioli plate. I think in, in, in a lot of people talk quietly about someday wanting to take those ravioli and just bake them into a lasagna, right? And that's your new multilateral agreement, which is, which is the lasagna. So that's, that's as, as much as I can add to the conversation here. Marty, you wanted to jump in. Yeah, I well, said so there are many things on the table, and I can't uh, deal with all of them, but there was a question specifically addressed to me about the relationship between uh, ISDS and development. So can we uh, perhaps create some sort of an algorithm within which we can put these things together? And like in many uh, topics related to the ISDS, the studies seem to point in very different ways. And and being just a lawyer, it's very hard to, to say how one should Uh, react to them. It's true, as you said, that the Asian tigers, for instance, didn't seem to need ISDSs in order to to develop. Uh, There are studies that deal with specifically African cases as to whether the fact that the BITs with Africa have have, with Africa have had, or South Africa hasn't had, whether those ha- that has had any significance. And those are inconclusive and tend to re- be reduced into a psychological speculation about how credible it is, and I leave this open, how credible it is that an investor, before making the investment decision, thinks, well, this country doesn't have an ISDS, so I shouldn't, or it has, I should. Those are, it's really hard to judge that, and I ask, so I think everybody could look into their stomach as to whether that's a reasonable starting point. Let me just say um, something about the question of, 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 of the magnitude of the project. Of course, it's, it's enormous, and in my life I haven't been connected with something that of, of such great economic and political significance as this, and one could say, well, this may not be, at least from a European perspective, the economic situation, the political situation in which we are. It's a mess whether this is the moment when we should take all these steps at the same time. And I just, uh, last week I got this report from the European Council on Foreign Relations, a fresh start for TTIP, in which they say, well, we should scale down, the, the, we, should take, we should start from the, the trade aspects of it, which we are familiar with, which we can indicate the, the, the winners rel- with relative ease and in which with national parliaments we wouldn't have such problems as we would have. This, would be, this will be a mixed agreement, so eight, 28 countries will have to ratify it there has to be some realism here, and the European Council suggests that ISDS should be dropped, maybe some other things, and now to have that it would be a boost to the European economy and to the transatlantic relationship, to the, it would increase the confidence that Europeans feel about the United States, which just to put it mildly, it's not at a very high level, to have a, a more reduced agreement and have that work and maybe look at, at it in the future. So, um, and I'm comforted that, that very high-level politicians think that. But the last thing I want to say, which is kind of a response to the question by the LLM student from, from here, the relationship between WTO and um, and, and TTIP and ISDS, so what are the advantages? And one asks that question often, and I, when, whenever that question is asked, I'm, I'm thinking, well, actually, one should ask the question, advantage to whom? 
So everything that's on the table is advantageous for some operator in the international global realm. There isn't, when politicians say this is good or this is bad, they usually want not, want to, want not to take a position as to bad or good for whom, because that's politically always controversial. But, so I would say the WTO road is advantageous for those who feel that has, the state has to act as a filter. In the WTO, the private investor and the private company cannot act without endorsement by the state. The state then takes on the claim and takes it to the WTO, and many of us feel, well, that filter is needed. I recognize that many feel that that filter is really a problem and that the operators should act. So, again, it breaks down into advantageous Uh, for whom, and my final point is about China. So whenever one has public discussions with, uh, like such as this, and, and in those discussions where real protagonists are there, those who support this project, I'm really, really um, worried that this is skewed, the debate, because there is no real enthusiastic supporter here on the table. But when my, I can only report with my discussions with those people, so why do you want this? There's, first, there's a lot of uncertain data about expectations of people, about the economic effects. But then at the end of the day, we need it because we need it with China. And if it doesn't come to TTIP, it doesn't, it doesn't come to China. So that's the only old colonialist argument. So we have to first, you know, set out the games uh, of, of the play, and then we can dictate those to the Chinese. Um, now, I wonder about the morality of that, but that's neither here nor there because this is not about morality. But I also wonder about the realism of that. When I'm speaking with my Chinese students who are by far the best trade, trade law students that, are, that I, I meet up with, they say, well, they have no problem with taking cases to... They, they have no problem with the WTO. They have, would have little problem with the ISDS. So I'm not sure whether that's a real argument. Okay, well, it's certainly an argument. I mean, I, I'm, I, like I said, I've just come over from Washington, and, and, and I'll just one more point on China. And I would say that President Obama is using China and, and the idea of the U.S. getting out and setting rules uh, out in the Pacific Rim through the Trans-Pacific Partnership very much uh, as, as, as a counter to China, getting out ahead of China, setting the rules. Their thing. I'm talking about labor and environmental mm -hmm. standards and so on. That's very much part of the sales pitch you hear in the U.S. for the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which is the big hot topic over there, which does include ISDS as well. Now, he has been incredibly patient. We really should all applaud him. Uh, the man in the orange shirt uh, there who uh, was one of the first hands up. And, and then we'll Jumper, it's not a shirt. Uh, Antonio Tricarico coming from Italy, by the way, uh, <laughs> working for a civil society organization. I want to ask Jan, could you tell us a bit more about the jurisprudence of the European Court of Justice and the Strasbourg Court in terms of uh, cases of uh, alleged violations of investors' rights, whether you think that this jurisprudence, which might exist, I guess, is biased against investors or is, as you said, you know, is, uh, recognize those rights. And my second point is, uh, assuming I, I give up my NGO and I set up a small local company, not a transnational multinational company who has to face the apparently very primitive um, Italian judiciary system worse than the Mexican one. Um, isn't there a competition issue uh, within the EU that I'm not allowed basically to take my government to the arbitration while the Mexican investor 
well, better to say U.S. or others might. Um, and I'm saying this because recently, actually, the European Commission moved sanctions as state aid, by the way, for the tax holidays allowed to some companies investing in Luxembourg Island. Mm. And I'm wondering whether if we transpose this concept, uh, we should also have the Commission sanction eventually so, this double so standard. It's a very good question. Let's come to the front row here, uh, and then we'll go to the second row, and then we'll, we'll go to Twitter. Um, Linda Korsha from Stop TTIP UK. Okay. Um, first of all, Sean, I'd like to say that to me, intrinsically, setting labour and environmental standard rules seems a very different uh, ballgame to establishing ISDS in relation to China. But you're simply, saying, simply yeah. making the point that it's Okay, part of the but I mean, that they are yeah. really coming from different angles. Um, but uh, I wanted to ask about the existing um, BIT, the, the investment treaties, and... Um, the existing investment treaties, uh, particularly the ones that the EU, EU, some EU states have with the US, are used as the argument for ISDS in TTIP to a large extent, um, even though they're mostly uh, Eastern European countries that have those. Um, can you talk about um, the possibility for getting out of those existing bits and whether you think that's advisable. Okay, and just behind you there. Thank you. Uh, Sheila Page, Overseas Development Institute. Uh, slightly related question. How far is European, and particularly European business support for ISDS, a fear that not getting it will cause, uh, cast doubt on all the existing bits which the member states have, which in principle have all lapsed anyway and therefore need renegotiation? And will some of the developing countries simply say, well, if you won't sign one yourself, forget it? That, that is an argument I've heard. It's interesting. Jan, do you want to? <clears throat> yeah, I, I guess we, we, we can take the last two together because um, it is clearly. <coughs> Sorry. <coughs> The, the, the Commission's declared intention to bring about a new generation of an investment treaty that will serve as a model for the future, not only for the negotiations with China and so on and so on, but also to get rid of the existing BITs. I think there is very little, um, how to say, uh, controversy over the fact that those old BITs, to a certain degree, if you want to, were good for us as long as they applied to other countries, but they are clearly not what we would design for ourselves. We wouldn't have done it at the time. So getting them out of the world is probably the, a rather urgent thing to do, and the Commission says, well, this is exactly what we're doing. We are, we are bringing in a new um, generation about which will eliminate those old ones because the Commission will then each time substitute one big European treaty for the, I don't know how many, member state treaties. Um, and, and, um, but that is a, leads to a tricky situation. If the new model did not include ISDS, right, then the fear is that member states will be saying, no, 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 but then we keep the old ones. right? We, we, we don't want to get rid of them. Um, because our investors have advantages through them. Um, I think that that is a, is a problematic situation. I think the, the Commission will have to I don't know, take a political decision on this, how far it wants to take this. I, I personally have no answer to this. Uh, um, uh, it, 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 would, it would make a whole lot of sense to get rid of, of the old BITs so far as they 
could be applied uh, to a European member state. Um, but there is a broader question, which might be a moral question. Maybe you should get rid of all of that altogether. I can't say that. But uh, they, the, the, the question is on the table, and the European Commission says that is what we're doing. We're addressing this problem. Um, to be honest, they have already done so, and this is the very beginning of the problem between EU law and BITs, is when the Eastern European countries acceded to the European Union in, in the preparation of that, the European Commission realized that many of those BITs could potentially allow claims against countries, uh, Eastern European countries for the simple fact that they implemented EU law. And that is why the EU then negotiated with the US to get uh, some kind of uh, dispense from that so as to allow these countries to join the EU without getting into trouble. Um, but that is the beginning of the entire thinking process which we now have. Um, the question is just how to do it. I guess that is really the problem because if, 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 we, if we completely leave it out if, we, if there is no investor state arbitration, then there will be states saying, wait a minute, but then, then we want to keep the old ones. And I think that's a conundrum to which I don't have an answer. Uh, just to the first question, I don't have an answer to, to the European Convention of Human Rights interpretations. I'm, I'm not an expert in this. I just know that in principle um, the, the, there is lots of case law on uh, 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 the protection of property. Uh, there are lot, there's lots of case law relating to, to business activities. And in principle, that I don't see why that should be biased against business. That, that is not something I can see. But on the second part of your question, do we create competition between foreign companies and European companies in the internal market? Well, to a certain degree, yes. Um, if ever we accept that those treaties give greater rights. But this is, again, the argument for saying it can't be. We can't have... Uh, it would be absurd to put our companies under pressure by giving foreign companies a better head start in comp on, on what is supposed to be a level playing field, which I think, therefore... It just reinforces the call for saying whatever that means. It doesn't mean more. It, it means just putting them at the same level to, super, to, to over to sorry to compensate for potential disadvantages that they have for the fact of being a foreign company. I'm conscious that we started a few minutes late and that we've got two minutes left here, and that we can probably run a couple minutes over. Marty wants to jump in just very quickly. No, a, a very quick to, uh, to the European Court of Human Rights point. So I think there is a bias in the European Court of Human Rights. I think investors feel that they don't get a fair treatment there and that this borrowing loan route uh, practice, which has to do with expropriation, that, that's, that doesn't take into account the kinds of business concerns that, that businesses have. And I think that's not a so that's. That's not a surprise. So the European Court of Human Rights has a, has a list of substantive concerns that it has to abide by, and those do not take into account the kinds of concerns which would be taken into account in the ISDS system. So. Okay. Well, listen, thank you very much. Before we go, I just want to take my responsibility as a journalist very seriously and do some polling here. So I want you to put your hands up. Who here would support a TTIP with ISDS in it? Okay. We've got in it, in it. Who here would support a TTIP with ISDS out of it? Who here would never support a TTIP? Okay. All right. Well, listen, thank you. Thank you so much for your time uh, here this evening. Really appreciate it. Jan, thank you very much. Marty, thank you very much for thought-provoking discussion. Let's put our hands together and thank our speakers.